COVID-19 vaccine. This is in the Daily Mail. Cause for calm over Pfizer vaccine rollout after two NHS staff suffer anaphylactoid reaction. Scientists urge public not to panic after regulators warn people with history of significant allergies not to have jab. See, now isn't that the ultimate irony? They're taking a vaccine to protect them against a pneumonia-like virus. And they get an anaphylactoid reaction. Anaphylaxis, anaphylactic shock. What is that? It's a response of the immune system which causes you to go into shock. And one of the effects of that is trouble breathing. The article says, British scientists yesterday attempted to quash public panic about the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which is currently being rolled out across the country, following reports that two NHS staff suffered an anaphylactoid reaction just after being immunised on V-Day yesterday. Within 24 hours of the biggest ever mass vaccination programme in British history, the UK's drug regulator told anyone with a serious allergy to medicines or food was told not to have the much vaunted jab. The number of people set to be barred is not known, though up to 7 million people in the country have allergies severe enough to require medical care. According to the NHS, well around a quarter of a million people need to carry an EpiPen at all times. They suffered an anaphylactoid reaction to the vaccine, which is milder than anaphylaxis, and tends to involve a rash, shortness of breath, swelling in the face and tongue, or dropping blood pressure, the NHS says. Despite the two allergy cases, the government is continuing to vaccinate between 5,000 and 7,000 people per day across the UK, with 800,000 Pfizer doses already in hospitals and millions more on the way. Two allergy cases from vaccines. But look how many reactions there have been in total and in other countries. Yesterday, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, which authorised emergency use of the vaccine at a breathtaking speed, gave precautionary advice to all 50 NHS trusts now vaccinating the population that anyone who has a history of significant allergic reactions to medicines or food should not receive the vaccine. However, British scientists called for calm as public fears of the alleged dangers of the new vaccine, which is said to have a 95% efficacy against infection, threatened to derail the NHS's mass inoculation programme in the latest stage of the pandemic. Professor Graham Ogg of Oxford University used calm, saying it would be important to now understand the specific nature of the reactions in the background medical history of the individuals affected, so that any risks of reactions can be more closely defined. Staff are always prepared for the possibility of reactions, and as with all medications, will continue to submit reports of any further episodes. In the meantime, reasonable precautions have been advised by the MHRA. Dr Andrew Garrett, Executive Vice President of Scientific Operations at ICON, pointed out the large clinical trial used to support vaccine approval by the MHRA excluded those with a history of severe adverse reaction associated with a vaccine and or severe allergic reaction, e.g. anaphylaxis, to any component of the study interventions. The resulting UK patient leaflet stated that the vaccine should not be given to individuals who are allergic to the active substance or any of the other listed ingredients. In this respect, the patient information was similar to the clinical trial exclusion criterion and the approved vaccine labelling will have reflected the data received and reviewed by the MHRA to date. As more data accumulate from both clinical trials and clinical practice, then one naturally expects the safety profile to be updated and refined as with any medicine. The MHRA has moved quickly today to strengthen their direction on the basis of two allergic reactions in individuals with a history of allergic reactions, that is to exclude individuals with a significant history of allergic reactions moving forward. He added, Tuesday was a welcome 
cause for celebration and there was an enthusiastic response from those vaccinated. Labelling may well expand in the future, but it will be wise to be cautious in these early days to avoid undermining public confidence, particularly given the vaccine is in limited supply. Careful questioning of those about to receive the vaccines in order. Dr Penny Ward of King's College London and Chair of the Education Standards Committee of the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine said, As these two events occurred in people with a history of severe allergy, it is sensible of the MHRA to draw attention to those reports and to suggest that individuals with a history of severe allergy not receive the vaccine at this time. MHRA is actively monitoring the safety of the vaccine during clinical use and can be expected to provide updates to practitioners as more information is gathered. The prompt reporting of these events using the yellow card scheme and the rapid issuing of the additional information to guide practice shows that the safety monitoring system is working well. You know, they, this is a thing. They say this vaccine is equal to the normal safety standards, the checking of it, but what are the normal safety standards and are they safe? Just how rigorous are they? The article continues. And Professor Peter Openshaw, past president of the British Society for Immunology and Professor of Experimental Medicine at Imperial College London, said, Imperial College London, funded by Bill Gates, who's funding the vaccine, by the way, said, as with all food and medications, there is a very small chance of an allergic reaction to any vaccine. However, it is important that we put this risk in perspective. The occurrence of any allergic reaction was one of the factors monitored in the phase three clinical trials for this Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. The detailed data from which was released yesterday in this, they reported a very small number of allergic reactions in both the vaccine and placebo groups, 0.63% and 0.51%. Similar to the rollout of all new vaccines and medications, this new COVID-19 vaccine is being monitored closely by the MHRA. They will now investigate these cases in more detail to understand if the allergic reactions were linked to the vaccine or were incidental. The fact that we know so soon about these two allergic reactions and that the regulator has acted on this to issue precautionary advice shows that this monitoring system is working well. NHS England National Medical Director Professor Stephen Powis said, The MHRA have advised on a precautionary basis that people with a significant history of allergic reactions do not receive this vaccination, after two people with a history of significant allergic reactions responded adversely, both are recovering well. They always seem to be recovering well, don't they, whenever anything goes wrong with the vaccine. Don't all, though, so I'll get to. In the US vaccine trial carried out by Pfizer, 137 out of around 19,000 people given the vaccine had one or more of these reactions, but 111 people who got the placebo also had allergic reactions. Reactions to the jab can include a temperature, nausea, swelling of the arm, or in severe cases, feeling generally unwell, with swollen lymph node glands. A Pfizer spokesman said, We have been advised by MHRA of two yellow card reports that may be associated with allergic reaction due to administration of the COVID-19 vaccine. As a precautionary measure, the MHRA had issued temporary guidance to the NHS while it conducts an investigation in order to fully understand each case and its causes. Pfizer and BioNTech are supporting the MHRA in the investigation. In the pivotal phase 3 clinical trial, this vaccine was generally well tolerated with no serious safety concerns reported by the Independent Data Monitoring Committee. The trial has enrolled over 44,000 participants to date, over 42,000 of whom have received a second vaccination. The allergy scare came hours after Britain's drug regulator dismissed safety fears over the vaccine after a report revealed four people in the trial in the US got Bell's palsy, a condition which is usually temporary. Temporary, but it can take a while to heal causes muscles on one side of the face to droop because of nerves not working properly. 
Four cases of it were found in a group of 21,720 people who had the Pfizer vaccine on trial in the US, compared to none among 21,728 people given a placebo vaccine. But this rate of occurrence is no different to how often it would be expected to happen in a random population, the company said. Well, before I come back to the COVID-19 vaccine, I just want to give some background to vaccines in general. So vaccines are produced to confer immunity, they tell us, but of course, natural herd immunity by being exposed to viruses and infection lasts a lifetime because the body naturally reads the code, the genetic code of the virus and learns how to deal with it. Whereas vaccine induced artificial immunity often requires boosters, booster shots and is only temporary protection. And if people are locked in their homes, as with lockdown, they're not getting exposed to infectious agents and building up a natural immunity in the same way. One of the claims made in support of vaccines is that they produce an immune response in the body in the form of antibodies. But if toxic material is injected into the body, which is known to be toxic to cells, and I'm going to get into that in a minute, the body will generate an immune response against that. It's not the vaccine working that's doing that, it's the toxicity in the vaccine. Some historical background. The largest historical decrease in morbidity and mortality caused by infectious disease was experienced not with the modern antibiotic and vaccine era, but after the introduction of clean water and effective sewer systems. There was a continuous decline, equal in each sex, from 1937 onward. Vaccination for whooping cough beginning on a small scale in some places around 1948 and on a national scale in 1957 did not affect the rate of decline if it be assumed that one attack usually confers immunity, as in most major communicable diseases of childhood. With this pattern well established before 1957, there is no evidence that vaccination played a major role in the decline in incidence and mortality in the trend of events. Another example is since 1975, when Germany stopped insisting on whooping cough vaccination, less than 10% of children are vaccinated. The result is the number of cases of whooping cough has fallen. It remains endemic in the Netherlands, where for 20 years, 96% of children have received three whooping cough vaccinations by age 12 months. And of course, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, was eradicated without a vaccine. So, what is a virus? A virus is a microorganism on the nanometer scale, beyond the range of human sight, which can only be seen with an electron microscope. A virus contains genetic material, and this genetic material is housed in a casing which allows for contact with receptors inside the body. For example, the spikes of the coronavirus allow for a lock and key mechanism, whereby the spikes bind to the receptor and then the virus can release its genetic material into cells and replicate. And the process of identification of a new virus includes three key stages, isolation, purification, and finally sequencing. Without all these stages being completed, the new virus cannot be proven to exist and cannot be fully understood. The process of isolation and purification of a virus, for instance, a respiratory virus, involves taking a sample of lung fluid and filtering the sample, which removes material like bacteria and other material which is bigger than viral particles and bigger than the size of the filter, thus leaving only viral particles. Lung fluid can contain bacterial cells, cellular debris from dead or dying cells, exosomes, which are very similar to viruses, free genetic material and other materials, so filtration is necessary. Filtered fluid is then added to a density gradient reagent, a liquid solution with a specific density measurement, and a centrifuge, which is a piece of laboratory equipment 
a box basically with a, a wheel powered by a motor which is used to spin the sample material at high speed. The viral particles eventually form a sediment or band of material and the particles can then be extracted using a pipette. The viral particles can then be visualized and examined under an electron microscope which can and basically sliced open to reveal the genetic material, RNA or DNA inside and this genetic material can then be sequenced meaning understood from a genetic perspective and characterized and in terms of sequencing often entire intact viral genomes extracted from directly within a viral particle are not being sequenced only tiny snippets of RNA or DNA from samples like lung fluid for example and these could be only a few short snippets of RNA and this information is entered into a computer program. The intact genome may be 20,000, 30,000 base pairs long. So the computer program is used to fill in the rest of the genome. And in different experiments, the sequencing software will come up with a different sequence because it's just based on computer generation. I talk more about the sequencing of viruses in episode 76. In terms of vaccines, culturing viruses is very relevant. And unlike bacteria, which can be grown in a pure culture, in like a petri dish or a container of some kind, and then they can replicate and you can observe the way the bacteria respond. Viruses are not grown in a pure culture because they are not alive. They're either active or inactive. They cannot survive without the provisions of a living host cell. And often it's monkey cells, vero cells, V-E-R-O, vero cells, especially vero E6 cells when you look at scientific papers describing this process, they often mention VROE6 cells. And viruses are cultured in a host cell and cytopathic effects, which means the effects of the virus are observed, or what they claim is the effects of the virus on the cells. Viral culturing in virologic study is commonly subject to serious flaws and a lack of control experiments. The first flaw is the lack of isolation and purification of the virus. A solution claimed to contain the virus, like lung fluid, for example, is inoculated onto the host cells. And over a specific time period, cytopathic effects are observed. Another flaw is the host cells are not cultured with the viral material and left to thrive in a replication of their optimal natural environment, but are given minimal growth media, which means starving the cells of nutrition. And the culture material is mixed with antibiotics, which are known to be toxic. To cells and very often fetal bovine serum or bovine calf serum which is the blood from baby cows or calves which itself can be infected and contain genetic material and naturally resulting cytopathic effects are observed and claim to be the effects of the virus and also when cells are poisoned or dying they release particles and vesicles like exosomes exosomes are used to absorb toxicity and to warn other cells and exosomes and other types of vesicle like clathrin coated vesicles c-l-a-t-h-r-i-n clathrin clathrin coated vesicles can be confused with viruses they're very similar to viruses and what they do is they take an electron micrograph image of certain particles or vesicles and they claim that's an image of the virus but how do you know if you've not isolated and purified the viral particles to start with to use in the cell culture how do you know what you're seeing and isolating and purifying the virus particle which has never been done for SARS-CoV-2 the virus they say causes COVID-19 
is absolutely essential. If you've not done that, everything that follows that is flawed. You cannot test for the virus if you've not extracted it. its genetic material from directly within the viral particle in the way that I've described and extracted the entire intact viral genome. And you cannot prove the cytopathic effects of the virus in a culture. You cannot take an electron micrograph image of the virus and you cannot create a vaccine by using either a live virus in the vaccine or an activated virus or a protein or material from the virus. Isolation and purification is absolutely essential to everything else that follows. And I've read many, many papers claiming to have isolated SARS-CoV-2 over the last several months. And when you read their methods, you see they have not isolated and purified the virus at all. If that's not happened, then everything else that follows is flawed and irrelevant. You'll see a paper, it will say isolation of SARS-CoV-2 or isolation of COVID-19 virus, etc., whatever the title is, and you read the method and they've not done it. Now, a very prominent figure in the history of vaccines is John E. Enders, and he perfected, it seemed, the method of growing a virus in culture, and that has become a very standard part of modern vaccine research. And, and he published a paper in 1954 called Propagation in Tissue Cultures of Cytopathogenic Agents from Patients with Measles. At the time, they were trying to develop a measles vaccine. And he said in this paper, pathologic changes induced by the agents in epithelial cells in tissue culture resemble, at least superficially, those found in certain tissues during the acute stage of measles. While there is no ground for concluding that the factors in vivo, that means in a living host, in, in the body, are the same as those which underlie the formation of giant cells and the nuclear disturbances in vitro, the appearance of these phenomena in cultured cells is consistent with the properties that a priori might be associated with the virus of measles. So, translating that to everyday English, what he's saying is there's no ground, even after the experiment described in the paper, for concluding that what happens to the cells in the cell culture is what would actually happen in the body. And this, of course, references what I've already said about the tissue culture method, the flaws with that. But John Enders would go on to be very acclaimed for his apparent growth of virus in tissue culture and cell culture and would then be cited as a significant figure in vaccine research. Now, if the virus has not been isolated and purified, going back to antibodies, what then is the body producing an antibody response against? as a response to the vaccination, if it's not the virus. The toxicity in the vaccine. So let's look at the material used in vaccinations. Commonly used in vaccines is sodium hydroxide, which can cause severe burns in the tissue and blindness. Formaldehyde or paraformaldehyde, which is often used in culture used for embalming dead people. It can attack the respiratory tract and is a skin irritant. It can cause suffocation, leukemia and cancer. Hydrochloric acid, which obviously destroys the skin and attacks tissue. Aluminium, confusion, muscle weakness, bone pain, deformities and fractures, seizures, speech problems and slow growth in children. 
Now that's interesting because what is one of the common effects on children of parents who claim they've got vaccine damaged kids? Speech problems and slow processing of information. Thimerosal, which is mercury, obviously we all know mercury is dangerous. Phosphates can cause paresthesia, muscle spasms, cramps, tetany, circumoral numbness and seizures and is used in dishwasher detergents. And of course vaccines contain adjuvants which are a pharmacological or immunological agent that improves the immune response of a vaccine. Adjuvants may be added to a vaccine to boost the immune response to produce more antibodies. That's the claim. That's kind of interesting because there was there was a video on YouTube, Scientists Question Safety of Vaccines, World Health Organization Global Vaccine Safety Summit, December 2019. And in that meeting, there was basically footage of the meeting or parts of it. And there was a few interesting quotes from that meeting, one of which was, Dr. Suma Swaminathan, medical doctor, chief scientist, or was at the time of the World Health Organization, who said, we're not able to give clear-cut answers when people ask questions about the deaths that have occurred due to a particular vaccine. In most cases, there is some obfuscation. And people say, oh, nobody dies from a vaccine. Well, some people do. Dr. Stephen Evans, BA, MSC, FRCP, Professor of Pharmacoepidemiology, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who said, adjuvants multiply the reactogenicity. Now, that is the property, the ability of a vaccine of being able to produce common expected adverse reactions, especially excessive immunological responses and associated signs and symptoms. Physical manifestation of the inflammatory response to vaccination. So the quote is... Adjuvants multiply the reactogenicity in many instances and therefore it is not unexpected if they multiply the incidence of adverse reactions that are associated with the antigen but may not have been detected through lack of statistical power in the original studies. So I think it was Stephen Evans, who I, I just read the quote of, one of the doctors in the video says, they know adjuvants are dangerous or that at least they cause a problem and they don't like to add them but they have to, to vaccines. So it's known that adjuvants cause a problem. Dr. Martin Howell-Fried, PhD, Coordinator, Initiative of Vaccine Research. As we add adjuvants, we do see increased local reactogenicity. The primary concern usually is systemic adverse events rather than local adverse events. And this is an interesting quote. Professor Heidi Larson, PhD, Professor of Anthropology, Risk and Decision Scientist, Director of Vaccine Confidence Project, who said... In medical school, you're lucky if you have half a day on vaccines. And that's interesting because you go to your average GP or whoever it is administering the vaccine. They don't know what's in it. And people making the vaccine to an extent won't really know the full picture in terms of what the ingredients can do. And interestingly, the cell receptors that catch the peptide chemicals secreted by emotional states are the same ones that absorb mercury and other chemicals in drugs, food and drink. And emotional chemicals affect the body and chemicals absorbed by the body affect emotions. And in terms of thimerosal mercury, upon administration to the body through vaccination, thimerosal rapidly dissociates to release ethylmercury after injection. The toxicity of ethylmercury is well studied. Like methylmercury, 
ethylmercury distributes toward body tissues crossing the blood-brain barrier and the placental barrier that will be relevant later on. And ethylmercury also moves freely throughout the body. And the blood-brain barrier I've come up, I've come across in relation to the effects on the body of smart meters and wireless technological radiation. Come across it in relation to other subjects. They're a recurring theme, the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier stops infection getting into the brain and, and it, it's very important to keep that intact. And this is an interesting article. This is in The Guardian. It's called Sick to the Back Teeth. This was published on in November 2004. Obviously, it's relation to dentistry and mercury tooth fillings, but it's interesting what it says. Of all substances purported to be responsible for triggering health scares, mercury does seem to possess an uncanny knack of cropping up more frequently than most. This week, it has once again regained the media spotlight because of its supposed damaging presence in amalgam fillings. Mary Stevenson, a 59-year-old from Hampshire, claims that she was lifted from a 40-year black hole of depression when 19 silver tooth fillings were removed from her mouth. Since the dentist replaced them with white plastic, Stevenson says she is a new person convinced that mercury poisoning was to blame for her illness. Whether or not her diagnosis is accurate, its premise is nothing new. Debate has raged since the 1970s about the potential risks of amalgam fillings which contain 52% mercury, 48% copper, zinc and silver. Today, a growing band of medical professionals link amalgam fillings to conditions ranging from gum disease, migraine and depression to Alzheimer's, kidney disease and multiple sclerosis. Dr. Jack Levinson, founder of the British Society for Mercury Free Dentistry and co-author of The Menace in Your Mouth, goes as far as stating that mercury poisoning is an epidemic in the UK. Having removed the fillings of more than 6,000 patients over the past 20 years, he claims that nearly all those he has treated have reported a general improvement in their health. And he says, I believe many conditions fashionably attributed to viruses could in fact be caused by mercury toxicity. He is not alone. Harley Street dentist and president of the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, Dr. Anthony Newbury, was among the first UK-based dentists to introduce the idea of a mercury-free practice in 1979. He did so after attending a lecture in the USA where mercury leakage from fillings was linked controversially to chronic muscle joint problems and excessive fatigue. Such vociferous campaigning, the article continues, cannot be taken lightly. Mercury is, after all, known to be the second most toxic metal on the planet after plutonium. Most dentists, including those who are against an amalgam filling ban, now agree that the substance does not, as previously believed, become safely sealed when mixed with other metals and that it does have the potential to release toxic vapours in the mouth, particularly during chewing. In August 2004, a decision was made to take mercury, a known neurotoxin, brain toxin, out of vaccines given to very young British babies following its links with autism. Doctors were told via a letter that despite the Department of Health's instance or insistence, I think that be, that thimerosal, the form of mercury used in medication, was perfectly safe. It was to be phased out of infant vaccinations replaced by a new 5-in-1 jab. And if vaccines were safe and were proven to be safe and known to be safe, why would pharmaceutical companies producing vaccines seek liability from prosecution. And interestingly, this is from a UK government online leaflet about licensed and unlicensed vaccines. Current COVID-19 vaccine is unlicensed. While no medicine is completely risk-free, a license indicates that trials of the medicine's safety and effectiveness have been carried out and the benefits of the medicine are believed to outweigh the risks. So, by that official government definition, 
the benefits of the current COVID-19 vaccine does not outweigh the risks of taking it. So what's the point of taking it? It's been said that the COVID-19 vaccine will not necessarily stop you catching it or transmitting it, and that you won't necessarily be able to get your life back. Sorry, I thought that's what vaccines were for. Did I miss something? And in terms of immunity, this is in the Daily Mail from 19th of September. Half of Americans could have some protection against COVID-19. Studies find many people have immune T-cells to other coronaviruses that respond to the new virus. As much as half of the world's population may have some immunity to coronavirus, a small but growing body of research suggests. Tests done on donated blood in the U.S., found that about 50% of the samples had immune T-cells that reacted to coronavirus, suggesting that the donor's bodies might have the natural ability to fight off the deadly virus. Similar results have been found in the UK and Sweden. T-cells are basically a, a method of fighting off an infection or an infectious agent without the need of antibodies. And this would explain why some people who were claimed to have been infected, even though it's from a test, not testing for the virus, but even claimed to be infected with another cause of illness, whether it's flu or whatever, if they have symptoms, a lot of people don't who were claimed to be infected don't have antibodies because there's other methods the immune system uses. That means it doesn't necessarily have to resort to antibodies, but the article goes on. COVID-19 is thought to be so deadly in part because it's an entirely new virus to which humans have no natural immunity. Well, you wouldn't have immunity against something that doesn't exist, would you? And while that is clearly the case for many people, the article says, British Medical Journal Associate Editor Dr. Peter Dosh wrote on Thursday that the evidence is beginning to suggest that some people may possess some protection against the virus. Another reason why people would be claimed to be infected with the test not testing for the virus and have no antibodies is because the body has not needed to produce an antibody response because they've not been infected with anything in the first place. In March, a member of a Skagit County Washington choir went to their usual practice feeling a bit ill but unaware that they had coronavirus. Within a week, that person and another had tested positive for the virus, with the test not testing for the virus. Another 25 members of the 122-person choir had symptoms of coronavirus which can come from a wide variety of other causes. In the weeks that followed, 52 of the other 60 people who attended the practice would develop COVID-19, testing positive with the test not testing for the virus. The choir practice was dubbed a super spreader event because of the results of a test not testing for the virus and became an early indicator that certain activities like singing might facilitate transmission of coronavirus. Scientists saw the practice as a unique opportunity to study how infectious coronavirus can be. But less talked about were the eight attendees who did not get sick or why. Research has shown that people are more likely to catch coronavirus and become severely ill from it if they are exposed repeatedly, but this group shared a clear common exposure. One unexplored explanation might be that some people have pre-existing immunity to coronavirus. Most research on coronavirus immunity is focused on antibodies, immune cells that develop after the body has been exposed to a new pathogen. They're tailor-made to fight that particular virus or bacteria. In hard-hit cities like New York, the proportion of people who have antibodies that might protect them from reinfection is still fairly low. In New York City, about 23% of people tested for antibodies have them because the body's not producing an immune response against anything in the first place. Now scientists are starting to look more carefully at T-cells, which, like antibodies, are part of the adaptive immune system and learn to identify and combat specific pathogens. In addition to the US study, two of ten 
People's blood had T-cells that reacted to SARS-CoV-2 in the Netherlands, as did about a third of samples tested in Germany and most of those tested in Singapore. They're all small studies but point in the same direction. Although SARS-CoV-2 itself is new, it belongs to a family of many related coronaviruses. And we're told that we have loads of coronaviruses in our body all the time which don't ever cause any problem. And up until 2020, the vast majority of people didn't even know existed. Scientists think that some people may have developed T-cells for other coronaviruses that cross-reacted with SARS-CoV-2 because they are sufficiently similar. If that's the case, the world may be closer to herd immunity to the deadly infection than we think. Much research remains to be done before we can know if that is the case. Well, the whole argument of T-cells and antibodies in this type of immunity and that type of immunity is irrelevant anyway because there's nothing to be immune from but if you accept that there is then the idea that the only way to be immune is a vaccine is clearly a flawed statement because there are other ways to be immune to the virus and i remember that's a more recent article but i remember a few months back reading an article that said basically the same thing that a large amount percent of people may already have had the virus and be immune to it. Now, again, I don't agree with the premise they had the virus, but if we accept there is a virus, then the premise that there are other ways to be immune to it is correct. And herd immunity, of course, is not being achieved because a lot of people are stuck in their homes. On the same subject, this is an article in the New York Times from January 2004. Meryl W. Chase, 98, scientist who advanced immunology. He must have known something. He lived to 98. Dr. Meryl W. Chase, an immunologist whose research on white blood cells helped undermine the long-standing belief that antibodies alone protected the body from disease and microorganisms, died on January 5th at his home in New York City, according to the Rockefeller University, where he worked for 70 years. Dr. Chase made his landmark discovery in the early 1940s while working with Dr. Carl Landsteiner, a Nobel laureate recognised for his work identifying the human blood groups. At the time, experts believed that the body mounted its attacks against pathogens, primarily through antibodies circulating in the bloodstream, known as humoral immunity. Humoral immunity is basically immunity that involves substances found in the humours, as they call it, the bodily fluids extracellular fluids, such as secreted antibodies, for example. But Dr. Chase, working in his laboratory, stumbled upon something that appeared to shatter that widespread tenet. As he tried to immunise a guinea pig against a disease using antibodies he had extracted from a second pig, he found that blood serum did not work as the transfer agent. Not until he used white blood cells did the immunity carry over to the other guinea pig, providing solid evidence that it could not be antibodies alone orchestrating the body's immune response. There's a lot about antibodies that people don't know when I'm learning myself. It's not as straightforward as we're told the antibody thing. That's why I can say for certain. Dr. Chase had uncovered the second arm of the immune system, or cell-mediated immunity. His finding became the groundwork for later research that pinpointed B cells, T cells, and other types of white blood cells as the body's central safeguards against infection. And Michael Eden, former scientific advisor to Pfizer, former vice president of Pfizer as well, has talked about T cells and their relevance to immunity and infection. And he's been very vocal about the lack of need for lockdowns and critical of the PCR test that's not testing for the virus. The article continues. This was a major discovery because everyone now thinks of the immune response in two parts. And in many instances, it's the cellular components that are more important, said Dr. Mikhail Nusensweig, professor of immunology at Rockefeller. 
Before change, there was only humoral immunity. After change, there was humoral and cellular immunity. Dr. Chase's breakthrough generated little interest at the time, but it set in motion the research to help redefine the fundamental nature of the immune system. So many areas of medicine rely on this type of reaction that he clearly distinguished as not being antibody-mediated. So Dr. Ralph Steinman, a professor of cellular physiology and immunology at Rockefeller, people never anticipated that there would be something other than antibodies. It was an amazing finding. Now, I saw recently a very controversial documentary on the subject of vaccines called Vaxed from Cover-Up to Catastrophe. Got a lot of attention, this documentary. And I saw it. It's been banned on various platforms, but I saw it on Iconic.com. I-C-K-O-N-I-C. You can sign up for a seven-day free trial. And they also produce their own documentary called Informed Consent, Injecting Balance to the Vaccine Debate. And that's available soon. It might be available by the time you listen to this on band.video. You can watch it on Iconic, obviously, but if you want to see it free without signing up to Iconic, you can see it on band.video, as in being banned, B-A-N-N-E-D. And this is a description of Vaxxed on the website. In 2013, biologist Dr. Brian Hooker received a call from a senior scientist at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who led the agency's 2004 study on the measles mumps rubella vaccine and its link to autism. The scientist, Dr. William Thompson, confessed that the CDC had omitted crucial data in their final report that revealed a causal relationship between the MMR vaccine and autism. Over several months, Dr. Hooker caused the phone calls made to him by Dr. Thompson, who provides the confidential data destroyed by his colleagues at the CDC. Dr. Hooker enlists the help of Dr. Andrew Wakefield, the British gastroenterologist, falsely accused of starting the anti-vax movement when he first reported in 1998 that the MMR vaccine may cause autism. In his ongoing effort to advocate for children's health, Wakefield directs this documentary examining the evidence behind an appalling cover-up committed by the government agency charged with protecting the health of American citizens. Interviews with pharmaceutical insiders, doctors, politicians and parents of vaccine-injured children reveal an alarming deception that has contributed to the skyrocketing increase of autism and potentially the most catastrophic epidemic of our lifetime. Now this is not me saying vaccines cause autism and it's not something I've really looked at beyond watching the movie. But I did make some notes, which are interesting. These are in no particular order. I was going to kind of structure them into an order, but for the sake of getting this segment out quickly, I'm going to... So I've, I've released this segment on its own, and then I'll put it together with a whole episode when I've done the rest of the episode. So, because obviously this subject, this segment is about vaccines, so I want to get this one out on its own as quick as possible. So to do that, Instead of them, these notes being in any order necessarily, they're just notes that I've made from watching the documentary. So William Thompson, who I mentioned when I read out that description, was a senior scientist at the CDC. And he said, I was involved in deceiving millions of taxpayers about the potential negative side effects of vaccines. We lied about the scientific findings. The CDC can no longer be trusted to do vaccine safety work, can't be trusted to be transparent. The CDC can't be trusted to please itself. He says the CDC can no longer be trusted to do vaccine safety work. I would say it never could, but that's what he said, that it could no longer be trusted. Brian Hooker, who I mentioned, who recorded these phone calls with Dr. William Thompson, has 60 publications in scientific journals, and he contacted the CDC critical of their studies. His son, Stephen, 
two weeks after his 15-month vaccines, lost all eye contact and use of language. And Thompson says that CDC research is 10 years behind because the CDC is so paralysed by anything to do with autism. 10 years behind. The movie was released in 2016, so it's a recent statement. William Thompson investigated vaccine effects on black children who it was found, according to the documentary, were 2.64 times or 164% more likely to receive autism diagnosis than if they'd received their MMR after three years. What they're saying is earlier vaccination more likely to be diagnosed with autism. And it's known that autism is four times more common in boys than girls. And the documentary says that the African-American children were basically mirrored this statistic. They were 3.3% six times or 236 percent more likely to have autism william thompson raised the issue with cdc researchers in they used to have weekly meetings or they have weekly meetings and he said that african-americans showed a highly significant statistical risk of autism if they took vaccines early and brian hooker called william thompson to tell him the findings that the prevalence in terms of race is downplayed and thompson said of course it is so these organizations know what they're doing i've talked about the world health organization in episode 72 and how corrupt and psychopathic they are what they found was those kids with isolated autism which is no other health concern before their autism were seven or eight times higher uh, more likely to be diagnosed with autism after vaccination and stephanie seneff an mit senior research scientist says in the documentary I got interested in studying autism eight years ago when I looked at the trends and saw there was exponential growth in autism rates. And Luc Montagne, he won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the AIDS virus. That's another story. The AIDS virus hoax matches the COVID-19 hoax in ways I might get into in another episode, possibly this episode. I've not started the rest of this episode yet, so we'll see. But that, anyway, he said in the documentary that the MMR vaccine before the age of two increases the risk of autism. And he said, this is known but covered up. Now, that matches what I said earlier about the African-American children, where it was found that before a certain age, they are more likely to be diagnosed with autism. And Doreen Grampachet, PhD, BCBA, founder for the Centre for Autism and Related Disorders, said, several parents showed footage of their children normal until 18 months to her then post-vaccination there was an incredible regression lost language which is exactly what brian hooker's son experienced no social interaction and connection and not responding to their own name i mean can you imagine what that must be like for a parent and it's revealed in the documentary that in 1987 the mmr vaccine caused meningitis. It was withdrawn in Canada. In the same month the vaccine was withdrawn in Ontario, it was licensed in the UK and changed the name to Triverix or Pluverix. Same outcome in the UK, withdrawn. Huge outcry from the public and then shipped to developing countries like Brazil where there was a meningitis epidemic. And there are two parents in the documentary, John and Polly Tommy. Polly Tommy is the founder of Autism File Magazine. And John Tommy is personal training director of programming for WLT London Weekend Television, or was at one point. And they did a program about their experience and 250,000 emails. 
and enormous response from other parents whose kids have been vaccinated and they were reporting the same symptoms. Diarrhea, constipation, high-pitched screaming, seizures, shaking, banging head, and doctors did not answer questions and they started a magazine and got 45,000 subscribers within four months. It's kind of interesting as well. It says and it shows in the documentary that vaccine manufacturers actually admit in the small print that there can be side effects from the vaccines. And I'm not talking about a bit of nausea or a headache. I'm talking about seizures, a change in consciousness, difficulty walking. These pharmaceutical companies are absolutely psychopathic. You have to be to act as they do. I mean, as I said earlier, look at the history of Pfizer. The billions it's, play, it's paid out in damage payments and from court cases. And Brandy Vaughan, who recently passed away under suspicious circumstances, shall we say, she was a sales representative of Merck from 2001 to 2003. And she's done some amazing work campaigning against vaccines. And of course, the work that she's done is particularly compelling given that it's come from someone who used to work for a pharmaceutical company. And she says in the documentary, Merck manipulated data and covered up the fact that Vioxx, the drug treatment, caused twice as many heart attacks and strokes than a placebo. She says, what I learned from my experience is that just because drugs are on the market does not mean they're safe. I've said that in pay-per-view before now. And she says, with one vaccine, a company can make upwards of $30 billion in one year. Documentary points out that there are no controlled studies with vaccines. Documentary points out that any other pharmaceutical drug tested in the way that vaccines are would never get on the market, even as corrupt as the medical system is. And William Thompson is quoted in the documentary in a communication with a doctor called Dr. Gerberding, Julia Gerberding former director of the CDC and administrator of the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. And he communicated with her and he said, Dear Dr. Gerberding, I will have to present several problematic results regarding statistical associations between receipt of the MMR vaccine and autism. And Rachel Ross, MD, a family medicine physician, was sent material from William Thompson in the documentary or was given material, which William Thompson said was the fraud at the CDC. And Rachel Ross says that it's unbelievable, she says, to see the obvious data manipulation. And William Thompson points out that there was a study done, an analysis plan is decided before a study written up, which basically sets out rules for how to analyse data being researched and to hold those doing the study accountable because they have to then carry out the study in the way they've written that they will carry out the study and to deviate means fraud because it means you're changing the way you do the study to get a certain result and William Thompson developed the analysis plan he was responsible for collecting analyzing and presenting data and co-authors and CDC superiors agreed the analysis plan and the CDC reduced the number of children in the study to reduce the statistical power, which is the ability of the study to detect a difference, if indeed there is one. And the analysis plan agreed to use children's school records. And information on race was to be taken from school record. When confronted by data, 
have revealed an increased risk of autism in African-American children due to the MMR triple vaccine, three in one, as opposed to spacing the vaccines out. The CDC deviated from the analysis plan because data on race was taken not from school record but from birth certificate record and only half had birth certificate records in Georgia, the other half were born in other states. So instead of 3,000 individuals in the study, the revised figure was 1,800. This reduced what's known as the relative risk. It was reduced from 2.64 times to 1.8, meaning the relative risk was no longer statistically significant. And Brian Hooker says in the documentary that the CDC do vaccine studies only based on negative press about vaccines. So they'll find what gets attention about a vaccine from a negative perspective and they'll do a study in quote marks on that instead of conduct general genuine vaccine studies so the COVID-19 vaccine before I get to the vaccine itself just a few facts about the approval of the vaccine it is in Britain members of the MHRA the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency which is an agency of the government's Department of Health and Social Care are directly linked to vaccine manufacturers. Amanda Colvert, she takes consultancy fees from Athenex Pharmaceuticals and is a shareholder with AstraZeneca. And Stephen Lightfoot is a shareholder of GlaxoSmithKline. And then there's Dr. June Rain. June Rain is on the World Health Organization Committee on Safety of Medicinal Products and is conducting research funded by Bill Gates to the tune of £292,000 ending next year. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, by the way, also donates large sums to Pfizer, who are behind the production of the vaccine in Britain. The MHRA is funded by Bill Gates, as is Moderna, the COVID-19 Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. Bill Gates funds Pfizer, Moderna, and he also funds the World Health Organization and the MHRA. And June Rain, interim, the chief, He's the chief executive now, not just interim, the actual chief executive as head of the MHRA. How many times have you seen any of this information on the BBC? Never, because the BBC is also funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation through an organisation called BBC Media Action. So Bill Gates is funding, as the biggest funder, the World Health Organisation, the organisation that declared the pandemic in the first place and has... A frontman in Ted Ross as the Director General, who was previously on the board of a Bill Gates organization called Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, a criminal who covered up cholera epidemics three times in Ethiopia in 2006, 2009, and 2011. He's funding the production of the vaccine and he's funding, at least in Britain, the organization that's supposed to be independently regulating the production of the vaccine and the approval of the vaccine. And through the BBC, the reporting on the pandemic and on the vaccine. Now, if I can establish that, so can the mainstream media. Why haven't they? Whatever you think Bill Gates' intentions are, whether you think he's a good person who's just trying to find a vaccine to help people, or whether you think, like me, he's a more sinister person, either way, that deserves to be reported. Why hasn't it been? 
finally then, let's talk about the COVID-19 vaccine itself. Well, I've been saying since late March, early April, that there is no virus. And I've detailed my reasons for saying that over the past several months in these pay-per-view episodes. But without isolating and purifying the virus, of course, as I said, there's no way to prove the existence of the virus. And there being no virus was absolutely crucial because a real virus means the vaccine could not have been produced in such a short space of time. But the genuine, spontaneous, unplanned outbreak but also a vaccine would need to be produced that actually works. And given that no vaccine has ever been produced for any coronavirus, from the viral family coronaviridae, which is the official name for the family of the coronaviruses, it's a bit of a tall order to suddenly create the first vaccine for a coronavirus. In a matter of months, when vaccines usually take years, if not over a decade, including vaccines that cause harm to people. I actually think all vaccines can cause harm to people, but that's another debate. If the vaccine is shown not to work, if there's a real infectious agent, then people will still display symptoms. And the one thing about this vaccine is they're saying, although it doesn't stop transmission and infection, it will reduce the symptoms. Symptoms which can come from a wide variety of other causes none of which are unique to COVID-19. Even though they keep adding to them all the time, I've pointed out for months, and especially in the episode before last, that the test, the RT-PCR test, which is used to diagnose the virus, is not testing for the virus. And it works via amplification, where it takes a small sample of genetic material, which is not necessarily of viral origin, it could be any genetic material, the test doesn't detect what kind of genetic material it is. So RNA, in this case, it just detects RNA. It has to be determined beforehand what the source of that RNA is, which it never has been with COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. And it amplifies it, basically makes copies of it, blows it up. And the more it amplifies it, the more cycles of amplification you do, the more content within that sample can be picked up and registered as positive. Not because it's viral, but because it's matching the template that the test is testing for, which comes from the sequencing, which I mentioned earlier. So the more you amplify the sample, the greater the chance of registering a positive, not for the virus, but for genetic material, the more cycles of amplification you do. So if there's no actual real infectious agent, all you have to do is when you want to convince people there is, and there's a rise in cases, you make sure that the testing is done on a high cycle rate and then when you bring in the vaccine you make sure you lower the cycle rate and so you're going to get less and less and less positives and you can then say the vaccine has worked. So all you need to do is change the testing method through changing cycles of amplification and using different primers possibly and change therefore the case figures which informs the death figures to a certain extent and also produces less cases so you can say look the vaccine is working and that then will pile the pressure on the anti-vaxxers to take the vaccine and increase the demonization of anti-vaxxers as a danger to society if they don't take the vaccine because it's shown to work when it's not the vaccine that's working it's the way the testing is done that's changed and because without a real virus 
the testing and figure counting is the pandemic, then changing the way those two key aspects of the hoax are carried out will make it seem like the vaccine has worked. And in terms of figures, according to official figures, it'd be less than this now, but the last figures I saw, the virus's infection to fatality ratio, if you're over 70, is 0.26%. If you're under 70, it's 0.004%. And every time there's a positive test, with the test not testing for the virus, that is asymptomatic, does not go to hospital, and doesn't die, therefore, that figure, that ratio drops even lower. So why is a vaccine being, and the vast majority of people who test positive have no symptoms? Why is a vaccine being introduced for those numbers? Because it's not about health. So what is it about? Well, a document sent to UK healthcare professionals by the government entitled Reg 174 Information for UK Healthcare Professionals says under the heading Fertility pregnancy and lactation it says pregnancy there are no or limited amount of data from the use of covid19 mrna vaccine animal reproductive toxicity studies have not been completed covid19 mrna vaccine is not recommended during pregnancy fertility it is unknown whether covid19 mrna vaccine has an impact on fertility they're rolling it out anyway. And I've talked before about epigenetics, where physical changes in some instances, and even perceptual changes, can be passed on to the next generation. And this infertility will be passed on to the next generation. And on the UK government website, in a, an article called What to Expect After Your COVID-19 Vaccination, it says, the COVID-19 vaccine that you have had has been shown to reduce the chance of you suffering from COVID-19 disease. How do they know that? The PCR test that's not testing for the virus. Some people may still get COVID-19 despite having a vaccination, but this should be less severe. And it says, we do not yet know whether it will stop you from catching and passing on the virus. And this is an article on Wales Online. Having the vaccine won't let you get back to normal immediately. England's Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Professor Jonathan Van Tam, has warned that even after people are vaccinated, they will not be able to return to normal life immediately. Until we are properly confident of how the vaccine works and properly confident that disease levels are dropping, even if you have had the vaccine, you are going to need to continue to follow all the rules that apply for a while longer, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer told BBC Five Live. It is not something we are going to leave people waiting on forever, but we have got to follow the science. We've got to see the data that gives us the assurance that we can tell people that they can relax in certain ways and have a fairly high degree of confidence that it is safe to do so. And the ex-Pfizer head of respiratory research, Dr. Michael Yeadon, and lung specialist and former head of public health department and former chair of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe Health Committee, Wolfgang Wodar, filed an application with the European Medicine Agency and said the formation of so-called non-neutralizing antibodies can lead to an exaggerated immune reaction and they said the vaccinations are expected to produce antibodies against spike proteins of SARS-CoV-2. However, spike proteins also contain syncytin homologous proteins which are essential for the formation of the placenta in mammals such as humans. 
it must be absolutely ruled out that a vaccine against SARS-CoV-2 could trigger an immune reaction against syncytin-1, as otherwise infertility of indefinite duration could result in vaccinated women. The mRNA vaccines from BioNTech, Pfizer, contain polyethylene glycol, PEG. 70% of people develop antibodies against this substance. This means that many people can develop allergic, potentially fatal reactions to the vaccination. And people are having allergic reactions to it. And the MHRA is seeking an artificial intelligence software tool to process the expected high volume of COVID-19 adverse drug reactions. And this is discussed in a document called Supplies 506291-2020, United Kingdom London Software Package and Information Systems, 2020-S-207506291. And they say in this document that the MHRA urgently seeks an artificial intelligence software tool to process the expected high volume of COVID-19 vaccine adverse drug reactions and ensure that no details from the ADR's reaction text are missed. So one of these possible reactions, going back to what I said just now about the fertility, Bill Gates is massively involved in this, as I said earlier, and he's long been obsessed with population control, as was his dad, William H. Gates, who himself was very close to the Rockefeller family who created the World Health Organization, which is now owned by Bill Gates through him being the biggest funder. William H. Gates was an executive of Planned Parenthood, a eugenics and Rockefeller operation in New York. And Bill Gates is funding universities like Oxford, Manchester University, Johns Hopkins University in America, which is compiling the apparent global case and death figures. Imperial College London, where Professor Neil Ferguson and his team come up with ridiculous predictions and computer models which give the government what they want in terms of allowing them to use that ridiculous data to lock down. And Neil Ferguson and his team at the college, funded by Bill Gates, he's got serious financial connections to Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance, Fauci and Burtz in America. He's all over the pandemic hoax, but Bill Gates is a front man for the cult, the cult that I talk about, which I talk about some of the history of in episode 59, part two. So let's look at some of the things that Bill Gates has funded and is funding over the years on behalf of the cult, which the Rockefellers are massively involved with. So the Rockefellers created the General Education Board in America in 1902, and who's a massive, I think the biggest funder of education in America now, Bill Gates. Bill Gates is funding, or has funded, GM Food, which I talk about in episode 20 and episode 26 Episode 26 is rather appropriately called Genetic Engineering. Bill Gates, obviously creator of Microsoft and Silicon Valley, is fundamentally connected to military intelligence, which is controlled by the cult. And I detail that in Pay-Per-View in Print, the Pay-Per-View book now available at pay-per-view.uk. And Bill Gates gets a few mentions in that book. And Silicon Valley is controlled, ultimately, in terms of the country it's controlled from, not in America, but Israel, which the cult controls through the Rothschilds. 
And I've talked many times about the predictions or knowledge of this agenda of a guy called Dr. Richard Day, who spoke to a meeting of paediatricians in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1969 and told them to turn off recording equipment, not to take any notes because he was going to tell them how the world was going to change. And he was an executive of Planned Parenthood. And you can read on the Internet what he said that night, because one paediatrician guy called Dr. Lawrence Gunnigan did take notes and before he died he gave a series of interviews about what they said and I'll link to a page where there's a transcript of Lawrence Gunnigan said I think it was in 2004 and he realized that what Day said that night was happening and he wanted to let people know and Dr. Richard Day was obsessed with population control and he talks about limiting reproduction and abortion and all things that the Rockefellers have been involved in for decades. And Bill Gates said this. This is a quote from Bill Gates. First, we've got population. The world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15%. So this whole thing about population control, obviously fertility is all part of the birth process and if you wanted to target reproduction you would target fertility and i've been talking for so long now about the plan to genetically manipulate the human form leading eventually to a synthetic human form biological synthetic and the end of procreation and what would the chances be that the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 would contain syncytin 1 which could cause a possible antibody response rendering women infertile as a result of this vaccine when the cult's agenda includes targeting procreation. Um, SARS-1 was never shown to exist in the same way that SARS-CoV-2 has never been shown to exist. But if you can claim that SARS-CoV-2 does exist and contains this spike protein, then you can create an mRNA vaccine to generate an immune response against this spike protein and attack fertility in this way. And now we can see why we've had impositions like masks and lockdowns and social distancing. There is a connection between all of them. And I can answer that with a question. How are people going to meet now? How are they going to be intimate now? With masks and social distancing and lockdowns. And notice pubs and clubs and bars and restaurants have been closed where people often meet. And so they're all leading in the same direction, all these measures that have been taken. And that's the end of procreation. Moving towards the AI-controlled, biological, synthetic, non-procreating, non-gender human. That's what it's all been about from the start. Bill Gates is a cult frontman out of Silicon Valley, and I've long talked about the cult's depopulation agenda, and in pay-per-view in print, I describe various ways this agenda is already playing out. There's never been a greater opportunity for Gates' long-sought population control than now with this COVID-19 vaccine. Now, this is not to say that people will be infertile after one or two doses. Most likely, it will be cumulative. Also in the vaccine will be nanotechnology. Now, people can make fun of that all they like, but it's the truth. Because that's all part of the technological AI 
agenda, which fundamentally connects into the synthetic human agenda. I write extensively in pay-per-view in print about the agenda to technologically control humanity to the point eventually where, as Silicon Valley names openly say themselves, in the end, humanity will not even have their own original thoughts, and nanotechnology is key to that agenda being realised. The human mind will be artificial intelligence, and I talk about that in detail in pay-per-view in print. It's all leading towards the end of procreation and the end of the family unit, as we've known up to this point. And this is what the pandemic hoax has all been about from the start. Yes, lockdowns have caused job losses and lost businesses and people being placed on universal credit, which will work just like the vaccine in that if you don't do what the government says, you don't get any credit. If you don't take the vaccine, you don't get permission to really go anywhere or do anything. I've been talking for so long again about the plan for a cashless society. The real goal of this pandemic hoax all along has been the vaccine. However, when combined with these other government policies. It's all about the end of human procreation and human freedom. So many goals of the cult's agenda have been realised in response to the pandemic hoax, and that's why there was a pandemic hoax. When people read pay-per-view in print, those that do, some people have already got copies, they're going to be stunned, especially those not very clued up on the cult's agenda, at how many elements of that agenda that I talk about in the book have been realised or are on the way to being realised as a result of this pandemic hoax, bearing in mind that the book was finished before the pandemic hoax. There is a chapter at the end of the book about the pandemic hoax, but everything before was written before. Every year of pay-per-view has had a theme. So the theme of the first year was introduction, not just of pay-per-view, but to the information. The theme of the second year was special episodes and subjects that wouldn't have gone into in the first year and two-parters and the theme of this year apart from talking endlessly about COVID-19 I decided late last year would be solutions and people say what do we do well how about what we don't do it's what we don't do which will make the most difference yes people can protest and I'm sure the protests that have taken place have had an impact but we're still where we are we're still at this point despite the protest so clearly we need another solution and it's actually very simple to find solutions because what we're being told to do is what we need to not do they're actually telling us the solutions by telling us what they want us to do and therefore we can reverse that by not doing it refusing to remain under house arrest which people are only under because of a rising cases from a test which cannot test for the virus refusing to close your business, refusing to wear a mask, and, most crucially at the moment, refusing to take the Bill Gates vaccine. And how many people don't take it will determine where we go from here. Climate change is now being connected to the virus hoax, both based on something that doesn't exist, human-caused climate change, and even the extent of climate change, which I absolutely demolish in the pay-per-view in print, absolutely taken apart. And similar responses to the pandemic hoax are being suggested for the climate change hoax. Why is the alternative media called every stage of the pandemic since March, when each stage, each new policy is introduced and presented by the government, and, theref and therefore the media, as random and spontaneous? Because it's a script, it's an agenda, and we're seeing it unfold by the day.
The first man in Britain to be vaccinated was called William Shakespeare, so they say, who lives, they tell us, very close to Stratford-upon-Avon, where lived the guy who wrote, again, they say, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. And we need to stop being players in this game and then the game is up for the cult and their agenda.